This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 16 starts after this. Name your favorite biographies, besides those that you've written yourself. <laughs> well, they wouldn't be mine. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, they're just so, 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 so many. Um, but obviously, and I, 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 they're just a lot. Um, I right now admire a lot of a book by Linda Lear uh, that wrote uh, Witness to Nature about Rachel Carson because I'm writing about it, and she did an incredible book. Um, I, there's a, um, I've enjoyed recently a new biography of Andy Warhol and a new one of, of Malcolm X, but in my field of presidential history, I mean, David McCullough remains my gold standard. Uh, Why? Uh, I just loved Truman. And Truman's not my favorite president, but I thought the way that he dealt with um, Truman was great. I thought the way Edmund Morris dealt with Theodore Roosevelt was great. Also, the way McCullough dealt with Truman. I love Doris Kearns's particularly or, um, No Ordinary Times about her relationship between FDR and Eleanor, um, which was which was you know in just incredible. Um, you know, I'm read so many of them. They're all very good. Uh, the difference is some biographies have more literary style to them. What about early presidents and biographies? I love Ron Chernow. I thought he, I reviewed it, and I still think his George Washington biography is just tremendous. I don't think it. He got so much attention for Hamilton, and then Ulysses S. Grant. But the Washington one volume, up until that point, I liked um, Flexner's biography of Washington as a single volume. Um, but he nailed it, Ron Chernow, in that Washington book. Um, Did you see Hamilton? Yeah, Hamilton is an extraordinary, uh, a cultural moment, and it still resonates in the sense that uh, all of the music was just phenomenal, just from a musical point of view. But it, it had a deep impact on um, connecting hip-hop culture to history, finding an innovative new way to talk about Hamilton to a new generation of Americans. And he, uh, I think the play, more than the turnout book, created a, a national dialogue about Hamilton. Your three kids, did they see Hamilton? Yes. And what was their reaction? All of them love it. What did like they the, like about the it? The music, the draw, um, the the they're very catchy. The songs, um, the soundtrack, if you'd like, um, the um, but just the fact of it got a conversation that to my family that Hamilton wasn't born in the United States and he could never have been a president and you know the duel. Uh, you know, we're talking about Hamilton and what dueling used to be. It's a great vehicle. I mean. I personally hadn't known as much about Hamilton as till the play, and the play made me read Chernow's Hamilton. I had not read the book first, uh, so it woke me up that, gosh, I've been underplaying Hamilton in my lectures because I personally have gravitated to Thomas Jefferson. But are you sure you've been underplaying Hamilton? I mean, just because it became a, yeah, a success and... We underplay everybody. I mean, there's always ways to expand lectures, and there's ways to, um, you know, I've always liked George Washington so much and, um, and, and Jefferson out of the founders. And um, I love Paul Revere, um, David um, Fisher... 
Hackett Fisher. Hackett, David Hackett Fisher's book on Paul Revere I liked a lot. I loved Gordon Wood's bi dual biography of Jefferson and Adams. Adams. Really liked that a lot. I think it's one of the more important history books because it reminds us of these adversaries becoming friends and then dying, obviously, on the same day, the 4th of July, but their correspondence. I think there's an argument made, to be made that the Adams-Jefferson letters are almost foundational documents uh, in the sense that we're going to go at each other every four years, party system, we've got to bury the hatchet. And you see Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford becoming very close. You see George W. Bush and Bill Clinton becoming close. They're consciously becoming close. They're making a larger statement to the public. Um, but Jefferson, with expansion and books on the, on, on the Louisiana Purchase, and Jefferson as a writer and botanist, uh, um, you know, Jefferson's um, being a slave owner and, his, they, and, and Washington now reading about that, uh, realizing that there needs to be more emphasis to look at slave-owning presidents and what does that mean. Uh, um, you know, it's a very fertile field, presidential history. But I've right on the 20th century, I've never written a, a book on a president. And uh, in fact, Brian, in our talk, sometimes people will say to me, boy, you do a lot of different topics, Doug. You jump around. It's like, really? I mean, yes, Hunter Thompson lived with Jimmy Carter's house. I mean, I'm writing the same era of, the, of, of things. I'm not writing about founding fathers. I've been really writing about America in the 20th century, but more specifically America since World War II. But something like David McCullough will do Truman and John Adams, or John Meacham will write on uh, you know, Jefferson and then do Bush 41. They're jumping around. I'm kind of really looking at America um, and from World War II to the present. What did you mean by Hunter Thompson lived with Jimmy Carter's house? Oh, he lived in Plains, Georgia, in back of it. Carter, uh, Carter is very, was very close to Hunter Thompson, and Car uh, Hunter's cover story on Rolling Stone gave the youth vote to Jimmy Carter. I mean, he was a born-again Christian, and, and Hunter abandoned Ted Kennedy and built Jimmy Carter up. There's an argument to be made Hunter, without Hunter's endorsement and Rolling Stone's endorsement of Carter. He may not have made it to the presidency. He turned the youth vote and the rock and roll vote, Hunter, um, and as did the Allman Brothers and, you know, uh, Macon, Georgia. Where did he physically live? Um, he stayed there at their uh, pond house and uh, got to befriend Ms. Lillian. He caught on to Carter early, Hunter, and that he was going to be the big... This is when Carter had a... Nobody thought Carter could get the Democratic nomination, and Hunter globbed on to him because he went to a law address at University of Georgia Law School for naming it after Dean Rusk, and Hunter was doing a profile of Ted Kennedy and suddenly encountered Carter, who that day gave a magnificent speech about uh, equal rights and the like. There are two things I remember from our conversation in Plains, Georgia, that I'll never forget. One is you pointed out that the fence around the Jimmy Carter house came from B.B. Rebozo's house in yeah. Miami, uh, Key Biscayne. And the second thing was that you told us in that interview that Jimmy Carter was going to be buried in Atlanta. And as a result of that, the townspeople got upset, and I supposedly he's going to be now buried yes, now they've in Plains? switched down to Plains. That's correct. Yeah, they, uh, uh, and he's down there now still going. It's an amazing President Carter with brain cancer. With uh, 
I was proud to see him do his inoculation photos of getting getting inoculated. Uh, I think President Carter wants to make sure that he's around for his wife. I mean, he fights for her. I mean, their marriage is really an intense story that does get doesn't get the play. But they were there. There, that was his sweetheart from ever. And I just mean he has the will to want to live to take care of her. How much? How often have you been around him? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, um, I went down and would stay in Plains. Uh, also, I, I would stay at the house of John and Betty Pope, who had a house on a pond there. That was Jimmy Carter's closest friend, John Pope. Period. They're like this. Still it, alive? Uh, he died. Uh, Betty uh, it, Betty Pope was great, but um, John Pope was a um, worked in the cemetery world, the um, mortuary world, and it was Carter's closest, truest, deepest friend in the deepest way possible. And the uh, and I so I was close to John and Betty Pope and got to know Jimmy Carter, got to know his family quite well. Um, do, you have, do you have meals in his house? Oh, yes. I've, all right, well, he eats next door. There's a bed and breakfast next to his home. It's connected. And he goes over and eats um, there. I had a meal. Uh, you know, he pops in over there um, frequently. If you come in, you know, I went just a little while back, went to church with him, sat by him at his church service and brought my kids. And uh, and my kids all photographed with him and, uh, and all of that. Um, so... I stand close uh, touch. In fact, you guys here once at C-SPAN let me interview President Carter on his diaries when they came out, and I was thrilled to do that because I got to ask questions um, that I normally wouldn't. But uh, I just love the man as a person, and uh, he's just a um, he's interesting heart, and his the way he built his presidency into this remarkable post presidency of. Uh, winning a Nobel Prize, but fighting guinea worm disease and river blindness. His mother, Miss Lillian, fought, went, joined the, the Peace Corps late in life in her 70s and dealt with people with leprosy and all like that. Carter walks the walk. I mean, he's a man who doesn't need a lot of frills. Does he physically write all those books? He does. Does he have help writing those books? He writes them himself. I mean, his friend, his lawyer, Terry um, Adamson, uh, who used to be big with National Geographic, but is retired pretty much to Florida now. Um, you know, he runs things by Terry Adamson, uh, but Jimmy Carter does all that himself. He used to write his speeches himself. Uh, he wrote a novel about the Civil uh, about there. He writes poetry. Uh, Carter can do about anything. Um, you know, well, he could do build, you know, he does wood carvings, he does painting, he does, he's an older Renaissance figure, but what it is, is he's a farmer, and in the older America, people used to do multiple things. I mean, you're running a farm, you learned how to fix things, do things. He's of a, of another time of in America, because, you know, electrification came very late to Sumter County, Georgia. Um, that's why when people now talk about Biden's New Deal and all this, it's not understanding what that era was like in the 1920s and 30s when America wasn't even electrified and FDR's trying to electrify rural America. Um, it was a, it's a, just a whole different deal. But Carter's lived through all that from 
you know, gas lamp to, you know, to Mars right now where we have, you know, a helicopter on Mars. I mean, he's, his lifespan is an extraordinary story. Other presidents, how much time have you spent around George W. Bush? Less than others. Um, a very, I don't, don't consider myself to know him intimately well. Um, I, am, I know Carl Rove super well. He lives in Austin um, near me, and I, I see him a lot. Um, uh, George P. Bush, the land commissioner of Texas's neighbor on my street, um, the son of Jeb Bush, um, and George W. Bush I would like to write about. The, if I were Bush, George W., I think he has two stories that need to be told that haven't been properly, if he's interested in making his legacy look better. Um, and that is the bullhorn moment, the week, one week after 9-11, the story of how he was in Florida and was told about 9-11 and the Air Force One, you know, had to uh, f- fly to different military bases and then how he came to Washington and we were under siege and where how he pulled the country together and then stood on the rubble of the Trade Center with that bullhorn moment and then through a strike at Yankee Stadium. And I would do one week of looking at George W. Bush's immediate response to 9-11, which was really quite a quite inspiring story. What do you think of his post-presidency? Well, his second one I do is his work with AIDS in Africa. Um, yeah. He saved a lot of lives working with all sorts of people, you know, uh, Bono and, you know, all the... It, it's real lives saved that George W. Bush, very getting the money there to fight, um, uh, you know, the campaign against AIDS in Africa. He didn't have to do that. It wasn't constituent politics. It, that, I think, came out of his Christianity. Um, his time in Dallas, you know, he's involved. The, the library there is well-built. Southern Methodist University runs it well. I went and spoke there not long ago to um, a group. Um, it, it's very well integrated with the university, and that's a hot school now. Kids want to go to Southern Methodist University. Um, and George W. Bush's love. B- 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 George and Laura are adored in Dallas. I can't you can't put words of how much love there is towards them as a couple. They they do a lot of local focus on local groups. He does his Wounded Warriors. He just painted his book of on immigration. Um, he's you know goes to the Rangers games and uh, baseball and is in the stands. And he's built his post presidency like Truman. On who is one of his favorite after Lincoln, I think it was it is Bush's favorite president. Just the way Truman went back to independence and endeared himself with people in Greater Kansas City area. You see George W. doing that, and from that platform, plus having a charismatic daughter who's on NBC News all the time, um, and in comparison to Trump. Um, George W. Bush's stock's rising, and, and I never thought I'd see it rise because the war in Iraq divided the country greatly. It's seen by by most scholars as a mistake because of his slow response to Hurricane Katrina, um, because of the economy tanking on his last year, allowing Obama's you know fairly easy win in in 2008. I thought Bush couldn't rehabilitate himself, but he's run a model ex-presidency in his own way. 
Sean Willens, you know, the historian, wrote a piece, I think, for Rolling Stone right after he was president, said he was the worst president in history by far. Well, then then came Trump, and and he probably wrote one that Trump's worse. I think that the Iraq war is fading from memory of a lot quicker. You know, our attention span in this country is like... Uh, one wouldn't have thought, you know, what sort of happened with George W. Bush is that uh, by the the left or progressives or establishment, they started saying, look, W. had issues, but compared to Trump, he's a sweetheart, um, that they felt Trump is racist and George W. Bush not. Um, and Bush has been able to... Um, the Iraq war, just, we don't talk about it much. I mean, I think Rumsfeld and Cheney are the ones that have gotten demonized in history, and George W. Bush is, is being able to um, emerge fairly well. Uh, but um, Gene Smith, um, um, the biographer... Wrote Gene a, Edward Smith. Gene Edward Smith, he wrote a, a very critical book, First Whack, at the Bush presidency, a very hard, well-researched anti-Bush take. Uh, I think he was trying to be objective. He, he writes, I don't think a Democrat thing, he's Eisenhower is his big person, but um, he was, and so there hasn't yet been a biographer of Bush, George W., that's maybe filled in all the blanks of that period. How much time have you spent around Bill Clinton? Quite a bit. How? Um, where? Um, well, I know. I was at Hofstra. Uh, Hofstra University had me run the Clinton conference. You know, Hofstra used to do and still does these big presidential conferences where all the players from the administration come. And so, I ran the uh, the working with their cultural center there and uh, um, friends of mine at Hofstra. But I ran the Bill Clinton one. When? Uh, God, I can't remember the year of it now, but it was after, right after he left the presidency, and that was a big deal. That was when he left, and um, you know, Hillary had become senator from New York, and there was talk of her running for the presidency, and it was the first look at Bill Clinton's presidency. Um, he did not like that we had in the program a panel on his impeachment, um, and he. What did he, he expect? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I felt uh, personally he was like uh, kind of said I'm I'm going to praise you, but but why are you getting what we did is a call for papers, and some of these great legal scholars came in and did a big impeachment panel that I sponsored them, and there were also great panels that made Bill Clinton look good on NATO expansion or you know there there was a whole variety, um, but they he kind of honed in on these are anti-Clinton. Um, impeachment. How did scholars. you know that he was upset? He mentioned it to me when I was there at the re- reception for it. Like, what? What's this about at the program? He'd seen it in advance and then was a little concerned about what it. What did but he? What did you say to him? I just said they we these were the best papers we got, and that it's part of your presidential legacy, and it's got to be covered. There wouldn't be a real conference. Took it well. He gave a good, you know, I mean, a good speech. But subsequently, we met at. FDR's library. I did an event with him. I 
sat by him at an event on Haiti in California and introduced him in front of a large audience. Uh, um, but I've also visited him at his home in Chappaqua and talked to him, um, and, and on and on. Uh, so I've gotten to know him. I, I've met him at his office in Harlem before. Um, I'm interested in the Oklahoma City bombing with Bill Clinton when he gave the, you know, they have that amazing memorial there in Oklahoma City of all the dead, and they it's an extraordinary public national park site of the empty chairs of all the dead. And that, that moment in time of Oklahoma City of a domestic terror attack like that, I always thought if I wrote on Bill Clinton, I'd like to write a book about that um, particular event. Why? Um, it was so heinous. And then also it's a whodunit. I mean, the tracking down that they did of capturing the perpetrator, you know, Timothy McVeigh and it, his McVeigh's collaborators, but it was moved pretty quickly. I mean, it went through the courts, apprehension, uh, uh, busting, getting, and I thought Clinton's speech was his best. I thought it was like Reagan during the Challenger disaster and Clinton in Oklahoma City. It was very healing speech that he gave, very well written, very well delivered. And it, he was having a problems with the, the Lewinsky um, you know, circus and all that was going on. And that speech reminded people that he was a president, it reminded people why they voted for him, what they liked about him. Um, it, it, he came, he rose to the occasion of that tragedy in a way that George W. Bush, as I said, did during uh, 9-11 at the, with the bullhorn moment. And all those are big moments in American history. Uh, also, Clinton has an, a, a better story. I mean, for eight years president and you end up with a, a, a not just balancing the budget, but with a, a surplus. And you look at the trillions that we're in debt now to China and elsewhere. I mean, he has a story to tell of, of the power of negotiating. I mean, the, the deal making he made with uh, Republicans. And that is a, quite a presidential legacy. Now, some will say he moved the Democratic Party to center towards the right. But you might just want to look at it as Bill Clinton was able to do what a president's supposed to do, and that's deal-make and get things done and move, move the balls forwards. I've always been baffled by the right in America's disdain for Bill Clinton. Uh, he would seem to me to be the more centrist than Obama or Biden or the other Democrats, I mean, uh, I would think he's like John Kennedy would be somebody the the right wouldn't have such hatred for. But immediately Hillary Clinton started becoming the new leader of the party, and it was seen as the Clintons controlling the party. Uh, and they'll do okay in history. I mean, Bill Clinton will come out all right, but the the impeachment's a big part of that legacy that's never going to be scrubbed away. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.